0: a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual, Supreme Court reporter Jamie Hoover. Hey, Jamie, how's it going?
1: It's going great, Natalie. It would be going better if I were a fly on the wall of the justices' uh, weekly conference today (laughs) on Thursday to see just what exactly... If anything, the justices said about the ongoing leaky ship that is the United States Supreme Court these days.
0: I know it, it. Like I would love to be that fly as well. And it does, you know, obviously feel like the the big Supreme Court news is for this week is the same as last week, which is the leak of the Dobbs draft. Um, we've we've continued to see some fallout from that, and I and I, I have to imagine it's the big topic of conversation among the justices, but. Who knows?
1: You have to imagine, right? Um, And obviously, there's been some waning trust, I I suspect, if not between the justices, probably between the justices and their clerks, knowing that there is a, you know, uh, uh, someone who continues to share information with the press. And we saw a number of new news articles reporting about the latest deliberations and how they they've basically remained the same since... Um, last week's reported draft leak in which there was a five-justice majority to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. Um, there is some reporting to suggest that the dissents have not been circulated l- yet. We're not going to go into the minutiae of the latest leaks other than to say that there continues to be lots of chatter about what's going on in uh, <laughs> uh, the one first street. And this has not limited itself to the court itself. There's been, as you say, continued fallout in the form of uh, several protests actually outside the homes of the individual justices themselves. Uh, several of the conservative justices who you know reside in suburban Northern Virginia have had large groups of uh, protesters, progressive protesters marching down streets um, shouting into bullhorns. We have a clip of one of those here. We will not- And that's kicked off kind of a larger societal debate about whether that's, you know, legitimate peaceful protest. I, I don't think that anyone's making the claim that these protesters are breaking the law by um, walking peaceably down these streets and, and chanting into the air. But also there are some who argue that it is basically an inappropriate threat to judicial independence to protest justices in their individual homes as opposed to you know, maybe let's say outside the Supreme Court building, of course, not everyone shares these deep, you know, philosophical objections to what these protesters are doing. Here is Senate Majority Leader and Democratic New York Senator uh, Chuck Schumer.
2: Are Are you comfortable with the protests that we saw outside the homes of Supreme Court justices over the weekend? If protests are peaceful, yes my house is there's protests three four times a week outside my house that's the uh, the american way to peacefully protest is okay and i've been that's my wife sorry um maybe there's a protest outside but so so as long as they are peaceful that's that's okay with me
1: but natalie it has in fact spurred some action on capitol hill right?
0: That's right. Um, on Monday, the Senate unanimously passed a bill um, extending more protections to the justices. Basically, the bill authorized the U.S. Marshals Service to expand its protection of the justices from outside like the Supreme Court premises um, and also extended uh, protections to the justices' immediate family members. Um, I will also mention that uh, just a few days after that passed, the U.S. Marshal Service did say yesterday it was bolstering security for the justices. Now, it did not mention if there was like a specific imminent threat that was made or any you know particular kind of driving force behind that bolstering, other than just what you know kind of also spurred the legislation. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely been a driving force um, both on Capitol Hill and at the Supreme Court.
1: Yes, in addition to the statement that we had um, before we recorded last week's episode, where the court you know confirmed the authenticity of the leak. Um, In the following days, we had um, some public appearances uh, from some of the justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, who appeared at an event for the 11th Circuit Judicial Conference down in Atlanta, Georgia, basically where he called the leak of the draft opinion, quote, appalling, and said breach of trust by, quote, one bad apple shouldn't sully the reputation of the court's other, quote, extremely dedicated staff. We heard something similar, um, I think, the following day from Justice Clarence Thomas, who decried, you know, the eroding respect that people have had for the Supreme Court during his three decades on, on the bench. And one quote in particular I thought was fairly interesting. And he contrasted, you know, the court today with that of the days of Justices Byron White, Lewis Powell, Thurgood Marshall, and William Rehnquist, who he says were among the greatest generation, and he says uh, they had this; they still had this sense of obligation. Quote, there's a different attitude of the young people who come in, and I'm not so sure there's an allegiance to those things that we once believed in, that the institution is more important than we are. To me, Natalie that sounds like he's taking direct aim at you know this anonymous law clerk that has been speculated as the source of this leak saying you know young people today (laughs) they don't they got no respect it's a very Rodney Dangerfield moment we
0: should say also it's suspected to be a law clerk although it could be anyone of any age of any
1: any title honorific potentially justice So yeah, uh, that was me at least reading between the lines about what uh, Justice Thomas was saying there. But I think we've we've pretty much um, uh, gone over some of the latest chatter about the the continuing developing story in the case uh, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. Um, obviously, let's in our in our chatter about the the leak itself, let's not lose sight of the fact that this is a case with very big implications for. Um, reproductive rights, health, and abortion access around the country, with the Supreme Court poised to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade and uphold Mississippi's um, 15-week ban on abortion. But other than that, Natalie, it was a pretty slow week at the Supreme Court. Um, there were no orders or opinions. Arguments are obviously over for the term, so we're we're kind of we're still waiting for some of the major action to come.
0: That's right, Jimmy. And while. Obviously, we love it when the action happens and we get to report on it. um, Having a bit of a slow period also gives us just a chance to do something a little bit different, and in this case, go back to a couple of the conversations that we've been having this term and and the season of our podcast um, with folks who are in the community of the Supreme Court bar, um, and just you know, kind of step away from kind of the hustle and bustle of this moment at the Supreme Court term, and, and just talk you know about what it's like to be part of the community and what got them there and what they see going forward.
1: That's right. Our guest today is Shai Deveretsky. He's a D.C.-based lawyer who has argued 14 cases in the Supreme Court. He's also a partner at Skadden Arps, Slate, Meager, and Flum LLP, where he is the head of the Supreme Court in appellate litigation group. Welcome to the show, Shai. How are you doing?
2: Good. Thanks so much for having me. So
1: arguing you know, just one case in the Supreme Court is a pretty big accomplishment for any lawyer, something that a lot of lawyers don't do in their entire career. You've argued, as I say, 14 cases. And I guess I just wanna ask, did you always know you wanted to become a Supreme Court lawyer? Is it like growing up and wishing you were a professional baseball player or something like that? Tell me about you know your background and what led you to pursue this for a career.
2: No, I didn't know growing up that this was one what I wanted to do. Uh, I don't think I really knew what I wanted to do growing up at all. Uh, after college, I worked in management consulting for a couple of years. I really liked that job. I liked learning about clients and their problems and their businesses. I didn't like traveling five days a week. And I was looking for something that would be a little more intellectual and analytical and involve reading and writing more. So I went to law school. But even then, I didn't know that I wanted to be an appellate lawyer. That was something that I figured out over the course of being a summer associate at firms as I tried out different practice areas and then was fortunate enough to get two great clerkships, one with Judge Luding on the Fourth Circuit and one with Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court that helped to open the door to an appellate practice.
1: So you get into the appellate practice and it's a, you know, I, I think it's fair to say it's a it's a very competitive field, especially here in. DC, where, you know, you have the kind of pinnacle of the practices at the Supreme Court, which only hears, you know, six between 60 and 70 cases a year, something around like 10,000 petitions are filed there every year. And only, I guess, a handful of, you know, attorneys actually get to go to the Supreme Court and argue before the justices at the, le- at the lectern. So, you know, where did your first break come from? How did you kind of You know, how do you get to the point where you get to argue a case before the
2: Supreme Court? It is, as you say, a really crowded field. Uh, The court used to hear 100, 100, 100, 150 cases a year. Uh, And now, as you say, they're hearing only 60 or 70. So they're hearing half the cases they used to. The competition among firms for these cases has increased several times, several fold during that time. So it, it really is a very crowded field. I wish I could tell you there was some magic to how you get your first break the justices say in their rules that they're looking for circuit splits. And so I think you have a lot of uh, aspiring Supreme Court lawyers who are out there looking for circuit splits where there might be an opportunity to get involved. And that's how my first break happened. And I think that's, that's how it happens for a lot of people.
1: Can you just kind of explain to our, uh, members of the audience who may
2: not be familiar with what a circuit split actually is? Sure. So uh, when Supreme Court lawyers use the term circuit split, they're referring to a division of authority among federal circuits uh, or the highest courts of states on a question of federal law. And if you look at the Supreme Court rules, they say that one of the things the court is looking for as a practical matter, I think the primary thing that the court is looking for uh, when deciding whether to grant cert is whether there is that division of authority so that a case with similar facts might come out one way in New York and another way in California. The Supreme Court will look at that and say, we ought to make sure that on a question of federal law, there's a uniform answer to that legal question.
0: You mentioned the competition for these cases. Um, are there any other strategies that you use for finding cases to bring to the justices or to you know try to push through the pipeline to the justices?
2: Um, I- Honestly, not really. As I said, I I wish I could tell you there was a magic to it. I I also wish I could tell you that if you looked in advance at a list of cert candidates, you could predict with a lot of confidence which cases the court is actually going to grant. There's some mystery to it. Every year, there are a number of cases that I look at, whether they're my cases or somebody else's, and think this case meets the criteria the court ought to grant it. Uh, And they don't. And there are a number of cases that they do grant where maybe there's a circuit split, but it's one that they have passed up the opportunity to decide many times in the past. And so looking at it from the outside, you think they're probably not interested in this. And yet, for some reason, they grant cert. So there's some mystery to it. And I wish I could tell you there was a way to crack it uh, and come up with a strategy that's going to guarantee success. If there is, I haven't figured it out.
1: Yeah. And I know that uh, a lot of, you know, associates at some of these big firms, um, hoping to kind of, I don't know, I guess, cut their teeth on some of these appellate matters will maybe look outside the box of their firm's usual billable clients and potentially, you know, build out a pro se practices or excuse me. Yeah. A pro bono practices that, uh, a common way, or a way that you found useful to kind of hone hone your chops a little bit, and kind of describe the 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 um, the role that pro bono cases played in you know developing your high court career.
2: Um, so. When you're looking for circuit splits, circuit splits can come from surprising places. Uh, Not every case that the Supreme Court takes that involves a circuit split is necessarily a case that you would look at and say, that's the case of the century, and you would expect the Supreme Court to take it. Sometimes you can have a circuit split on on a procedural question that comes up in a case that may have relatively low stakes, but it raises an important procedural question that has divided the circuits. Uh, Or as you say, it may be for the type of client that may not be a typical client for a big firm. So absolutely, you have to think outside the box in that way. Uh, And some of those cases are going to be pro bono cases. Some of them may be uh, corporate or paying cases but as I say, just not necessarily in, the, in a case that made the headlines for something other than generating a circuit split on some narrow issue.
0: In addition to thinking outside the box, do you have any advice for younger lawyers who are interested in pursuing this type of career?
2: I guess I'd say a few things. One, um, if you're interested in being an appellate lawyer, I wouldn't fixate too much, at least not at the outset, on the Supreme Court. Uh, it's very difficult to start out and say, I'm just starting out as an appellate lawyer and I want to be a Supreme Court lawyer. There's a lot of interesting, meaningful, rewarding, challenging work that happens in the courts of appeals and also in the trial courts where as an appellate lawyer, you can integrate with a trial team and make a lot of contributions to briefing, potentially arguing dispositive motions, preserving issues for appeal and that sort of thing. So, So I would think, My first piece of advice would be to think broadly. Um, My second piece of advice, not to contradict that, would also be to think narrowly in the sense of if you know that you want to be an appellate lawyer, don't be afraid to to say that and to specialize in it. Uh, I think sometimes people early on in their careers are afraid to close doors. But I think appellate practice really is a specialized field. As with many specialized things in life, you get better at it by doing it more and more and practicing it. And so I think that uh, don't be afraid to specialize in this field if that's what you want. Uh, And the last thing I would say is, there are lots of places to find appellate work. Some people wanna be at big firms in New York or DC or whatever other big city. Uh, Other people will find appellate work in government jobs. Uh, You can be an appellate specialist at various different agencies. There are appellate lawyers all across the country who specialize in being the, the go-to appellate lawyer or appellate firm for a particular regional court whether it's a circuit or a state court there are lots of places to find appellate work and if the supreme court if you end up in the supreme court as a result of that great but but i wouldn't start out thinking that that's the be-all and end-all
1: so the last time we chatted shy you had just moved from jones day you know this established appellate supreme court powerhouse in dc over to Skadden, which is, you know, a, a, I guess a New York-based you know, litigation powerhouse in its own right. But my impression was at the time that it had yet to kind of fully establish this Supreme Court practice. So I guess checking in a couple of years later, how are things going?
2: It's been great. Um, as, as Skadden is, as you say, has not did not have a dedicated Supreme Court and appellate practice before I joined. But the firm had a really strong base of litigation clients and litigation work. And so it was a great opportunity to come here and spearhead a dedicated appellate practice, contributing to those existing matters, and also trying to attract dedicated appellate work to the firm. Uh, And and I think we've, we've done both of that. of those things since I've been here. Uh, I've had some some great experiences working on SCAD matters uh, involving regulatory challenges, some energy work, some tax cases, some securities litigation. All those cases have been existing SCAD matters where I've been brought in either to handle an appeal or to help tee an issue up for an eventual appeal. Uh, I also think Client, Scadden clients uh, and some other clients that I've had pre-existing relationships with uh, have responded very positively to our now having this this dedicated capability.
0: It's it's a little hard to cut through the noise of all the latter moves that we kind of see in in the legal industry in general right now, but it does seem like I'm seeing a bunch of law firms, you know, ramping up their appellate practices. Going for Supreme Court bar attorneys, you know, recruiting. Um, is this something that you're seeing or?
2: Yeah, I think really over the last 10 plus years, there have been more and more firms that have gotten into this space. Uh, I think it reflects client demand for this practice. I mentioned earlier if you want to be an appellate lawyer, don't be afraid to try to specialize in that. I think clients are seeing that appellate work really is a specialized field, uh, and so I think they're looking for top litigation firms like Skadden to have that capability. I think you even see some clients uh, some clients are creating new in-house positions for lawyers overseeing their appellate litigation, which is not something that you saw much of 10 years ago. So, so I think this trend that you're right to point out of big firms developing this practice is a response to what clients are looking for.
1: You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I want to kind of go in a different direction here, that you clerked for Justice Scalia. I, I recall seeing something recently about Justice Scalia's kind of warning to law clerks that like, you know, if you ever betray the confidences of these chambers, I'll ruin your career or something along those lines. I guess just kind of talking about the Supreme Court bar and the practice, maybe we could talk a little bit about the institutional aspects of the court. Um, what was your reaction to seeing the the leak about the, not about the particulars of the substance of the opinion, the abortion opinion, but, you know, just the institutional concerns that you've seen raised by a lot of Supreme Court lawyers and former clerks?
2: I, I think that there really are very serious institutional concerns here. It, it was shocking to see a leak of that sort. Uh, The court, when I was there, really operated as a deliberative body that relied on trust. There was trust between the justices and the clerks. There was also trust across chambers, among the justices themselves. Uh, And I I remember having conversations as Justice Scalia's clerk uh, with Certainly, many conversations with other justices, courts, and sometimes with other justices themselves. And the the atmosphere at the court was one of a collaborative, deliberative process that depended on trust. And if you if you have a situation now where people are leaking uh, draft opinions and steps in a decision making process along the way that really has the potential to to change the atmosphere in, in the institution and the way that it functions.
1: I uh, just kind of to to close out here. Do you think that there are misperceptions about the Supreme Court as an institution and if so how, what would what would you say to correct them? You often hear justices talk about how a lot of the public focuses on this particular slice of cases whereas, you know, folks such as yourself argue the kind of nitty-gritty um, quotidian work, the daily grind of the court, which is, as you say, settling these matters of, of of disputed federal law. What would you say about clearing up any possible misperceptions of the institution itself?
2: Um, well, a- as you say, my practice is really focused on business cases on certain pro bono cases that are not the kinds of highly charged cases that I think are leading to these sorts of, of misperceptions. Um, and so I think what the justices often point out is that if you look every year at the statistics around their opinions, um, far more are unanimous or near unanimous than you might expect. Uh, and so I think people, people lose sight of that when there are obviously other opinions that are very uh sharply divided and highly charged but there's a substantial amount of the court's docket that uh really doesn't fit that mold
1: well thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about your career and and how you got to the place where you're now you know kind of a fixture in every term arguing um at the supreme court and it was really illuminating to see you know just how you got there so i appreciate you coming on the show today
2: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Jimmy, I think that just about does it for today. As always, great conversation.
1: Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in.
0: We'd like to thank our producers Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano and our executive producer Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporters Rosie Mannins, Dave Simpson, and James Arkin. Music for the show comes from Thunderbeats. For more information about all the high card action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listening to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review.